This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company I've used personally for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 wants to reach out to you, the audience, and offer you a discount, which I will get to in a moment. As with each episode, I want to highlight one of their products. And I think an area that really needs to be discussed is uniforms. So most of us listening to this podcast are in some sort of uniform profession. And 5.11 were founded on clothing the tactical athletes. So they went to the member of military, the police officer, the firefighter, the EMT, and asked them what do they need to function at the highest level when it comes to their clothing. So their uniforms are reverse engineered from the user back to the manufacturer. Another observation I've made in several departments I've worked at is that we end up with lockers full of worn, faded uniforms. And what I found with the 511 uniform that I wore in California was that wasn't the case. They lasted several years and some of the job shirts and jackets lasted way longer than that. So longevity and cost efficiency is also another element to this as well. Yet another layer to this is the female tactical athlete. So they realized that men and women, surprise, surprise, are not shaped the same way. So they started designing uniforms accordingly to fit the female tactical athlete and allow her to be able to move efficiently. So, so many reasons why I advocate this company. On top of all their other great products, the Norris sneaker, which I think is a great alternative to a station boot, the AMP pack or missions backpack, and then their civilian clothes as well, their shorts, their jeans, so, so comfortable, so user-friendly as well. So, 5.11 are offering you a discount of 15% off all of your purchases. So, use the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com. That's 511tactical.com. And to hear even more about 511, their mission, their products, and their genesis, listen to my interview with their CEO and co-founder, Francisco Morales, on episode 338 of this podcast. This episode is sponsored by GovX, a company I've used for several years now and wish I'd used for even longer. If you are a member of police, fire, EMS, corrections, nursing, a hospital setting doctor, and members of the military, and you are not registered with GovX, you are simply wasting your money. A free registration with GovX marries you with a multitude of companies that are offering our professions discount. So by registering at govx.com for free, you will then have a lifetime membership and you can shop for the very same things and save money. I've saved a huge amount of money buying sunglasses, I've bought knives, I've bought clothes, and even concert tickets on there. Another area I love about this company is GovX Gives Back, where they will raise money for different foundations every single month. And with this being September, they have a 9-11 memorial patch that raises money for firefighter aid. So if you're active duty, if you are retired, or if you're a volunteer, you are eligible for this membership. And on top of the savings that you will get by being a member, GovX is reaching out to you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, to offer you an extra discount. If you spend 50, that's five zero dollars on your first order and use the code SHIELD, S-H-I-E-L-D, you will save an additional $15. So $15 off your first order of $50. So visit govx.com, G-O-V-X.com, register and then be a member for life and continue to save over and over again. Welcome to episode 360 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show this week, Caleb Brewer. Now, Caleb is a veteran army ranger who ultimately lost both his legs following an IED explosion, but the true power of his story really starts with what he did following his injury. 
So the physical rehabilitation is incredible. The mental rehabilitation is incredible. But the organizations he's aligned himself with, the Bataan Death March, Operation Enduring Warrior, and now founding the Operation Enduring Warrior Archery Program, there are so many elements of his powerful story I can't wait for you guys to hear. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast and make us more visible for people looking for a project like this. And then this is a free library for you, over 360 episodes now. So all I ask is that you pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single ear hole on planet Earth that needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Caleb Brewer. Enjoy. All right. Well, Caleb, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me here. Brilliant. I want to say thanks to Mandy as well. She was very adamant that we did this, that I, I reached out to you. So I'm so glad that she did. Yeah, absolutely. Mandy, appreciate you hooking us up. Um, your vital connection within the OEW network to us. Absolutely. Okay. Well, then I'd like to start with where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in Tucson, Arizona, which right now at this moment finds itself to be a hot furnace. Yeah, so we're going to get to the exact um, you know location that you're sitting in right now because it's a very, very powerful part of your story. Um, but I'd like to start chronologically. So where were you born and then what did your parents do? So I was actually born in Tucson, Arizona in 1984. Um, my dad was a UPS driver, or still is, and then my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and now currently she does real estate. So I kind of found myself Tucson, Arizona, went through all my army travels, and then found myself right back in Tucson after I got out of the military. Brilliant. Well, if your dad was in US, UPS for all this time, what has he seen in his line of work when online shopping really took off? And then now through COVID too. <laughs> They've seen a huge increase um, delivering Amazon packages. And uh, one of the biggest things that he mentions is Chewy. Because since the since the the start of Chewy and delivering dog and cat food, they've seen a huge increase in big boxes, and uh, you know people don't go to the store as often to buy their food. So that's one of the biggest things he's seen. Interesting. They actually built a giant Chewy warehouse in Ocala here, where I live. Yeah, they're growing like crazy. They are. Yeah, it makes it easier. I have to lug dog food around everywhere. Um, all right. So then, the very beginning. Then, when you were a kid, were you an athlete? Yes, I've I've been myself and my brothers have always been outside, um, playing outside, playing sports. We played soccer as kids, basketball, football. Um, we're always roller skating, running around, building jumps for our BMX bikes, swimming, building bows and arrows. I mean, cowboys and Indians, GI Joe, you name it. Brilliant. And then, what were your career aspirations when you were young? Did you, anything you specifically dreamed of being? I'll be honest with you, I, I did not know. When I was a kid, I, th I think I wanted to play basketball in the NBA for the Houston Rockets, um, simply because I liked their logo, nothing nothing other than that. Back in the day when Hakeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler were the big dudes on the team. But then as I grew up and went to high school, I didn't really really think about it. I, went, I ended up going to a, a charter school, and they were big on academics. And so I was 
um, with some kids and we just, as a group were like, let's go be mechanical engineers. So that, that became my life goal. And funny enough, as I got to college, I realized there was no way I was mature enough to go to college for something like that as a mechanical engineer. So I ended up dropping out of school and becoming um, a restaurant bartender and a server for a while. Right. Now, had you had any um, extended family that were in the military or first responders? Not not a whole lot. My uncle, my dad's brother, he was in the Air Force for a time. But um, the biggest the biggest person that was an impact on me was not even blood related, but we called him Gramps. He was kind of like an adopted grandfather, but he fought in World War II. He was a B-2 um, bomber pilot. He got shot down over Germany during the, a bombing raid, and he ended up um, going in with the Russians and them safeguarding him. And then he had to evade and escape through enemy lines back to friendly forces. It's a pretty incredible story, and he was awarded the Silver Cross for that. You know, it literally breaks my heart that podcasting didn't start like 30 years earlier that we could have got so many of these amazing world war ii stories from these veterans before they passed away oh my god I, there are so many stories i mean i when i went not to jump ahead but when i went to the baton death march the the survivors from the baton death march in the philippines from world war ii some of them were there and one of the guys was a colonel and he was there at this event two years ago when i was there and he was 98 i believe or 99 and he survived the Bataan Death March. He became a POW in the Japanese prisoner camps for a while, was rescued, and he wrote a book afterwards, and he even walked eight miles with us along the route. I mean, it's giving me goosebumps right now. It is so incredibly powerful. That's incredible. And these men, it's funny, I actually wrote, um, I just finished a book, and one of the, the episodes talks about this, that these people that we label old people, we have no idea what some of the incredible things you know, that some of these men and women have done, but now they're just, you know, cottonheads, whatever the term is, the, the people blanket the elderly. But yeah, we, we discredit the knowledge, the wisdom, the experience of so many of these people that are around us. They, yeah, and they're, they're not terribly vocal about things because they've been through so much. And, and like my, my gramps, he, he never talked about stuff. You could, know, you could tell because of his demeanor and how he held himself that he had been through a lot of stuff. And, uh, it wasn't until I joined the military that he really opened up and started talking about things and some of his experiences. And it's just, it's just incredible to think like, I can't, I, I can't imagine being in an airplane in a craft that's not even advanced as what we have today, just going through a barrage of anti-aircraft fire over Germany, getting shot down, being the captain, making sure that everybody else jumps out of the plane before you and then jumping out then getting captured by Russians who speak no English and still, I mean, even though the U.S. and Russia were allies, it was still kind of touch and go. And then getting to the point where you have to escape and evade through Germany all the way through Europe across um, to friendly forces. I mean, that's, that's, that's something that not many people go through, but that was more commonplace back in the 40s, you know, when we were at war. Yeah, exactly. So, so obviously that's a huge inspiration then. So tell me about your journey into the army. So I, I joined the military in 2005 and it was, so I graduated high school in 2003. So I did the restaurant scene for a couple of years and I just, I floated, I floated around, realized I needed a purpose. And so I was looking at the military and I, and I remember flashing back to when I was in high school and seeing 9-11 and seeing the towers because our, our history teacher played the news for us and talked about how this is a, a really huge event for the history of America. And I just thought about it. And at that time, I didn't really 
I don't think I comprehended it. But then as I got a little older and the war on terror began, I um, started thinking about it. I was like, man, I want to go do something. I need a purpose. I want to serve. And one of my buddies was in the military. He was in the reserves in intelligence. And, and he was like, hey, look, you know, you didn't finish college. But if you join the reserves, you can have the ability to get your college paid for. And you can do intelligence. You can have a lot of experience. And it's a great job for or a great military career that leads to a civilian job later on. I was like, cool, that sounds great. So I signed up and I went to basic training in 2006. And I remember I had a buddy of mine he uh, that I met in basic training. He had a book and it was called Get Selected for Special Forces. And I started reading that book and I was like, I made a huge, de- I, made a, I made a bad decision. I should have joined the Army Special Forces right out of the gate because they had an entry program called the 18 X-ray program where you get brought in as an infantry soldier, you go to airborne training and then you go to preparatory courses for selection. And so that was in, that was in the beginning of 06. And I made a goal. I was like, I'm going to go to special forces someday. So as, as a lot of long-term goals go, they kind of get put to the wayside, you know, cause I had to focus on basic training. I had to focus on once I got back, you know, getting a job, being back with my family cause I was in the reserves. And then, um, in 2007, I was working for a Ford dealership here in Tucson as a mechanic. And right after that, I got married in August 2007 to my wife. And then in November, we got deployment orders to Iraq um, for the following year. So it was just back to back. I had just gotten on with Ford and they were going to pay for me to go be a mechanic and get certified, got married. And then they're like, boom, you're going to Iraq. So a lot of it got put on hold. And so from um, June 08 to about, uh, September 09, I was in Iraq, um, deployed to Baghdad doing intelligence work. And it was pretty amazing being there with, you know, with high level individuals. Cause we were at a high level in Iraq. So with a core, so it was, it was just below the theater level. And so we were advising generals like General Petraeus, General Austin, General Odierno, who were there. We were telling them, Hey, you know, these are what, this is what's going on with the country. And, um, during that time, this goal resurfaced with me and a couple of buddies because we sat at desks eight hour, 18 hours a day and we were just going a little stir crazy with, with the computer time. So me and a small group of guys were like, we're going to go train to go to selection after we get back. So we started going to the gym, ruck marching, running, you know, training ourselves as best we could. And then once we got back from Iraq, I, uh, I transferred units to the Utah National Guard and they had a special forces unit out of there, the 19th special forces group. And then I went to selection in, so backing up the timeline. So I got back from Iraq, uh, September, 2009, um, transferred units, November, 2009, um, 2010 in July, my second, my first daughter was born Evelyn. And then, so that was in July In August, I went to airborne school. And then November of 2010, my family, my family moved to North Carolina to do a two-year training stint to the Special Forces course. So it was just hot and heavy back to back with that stuff. Right. So when were you uh, when were you actually deployed as a Green Beret? Was it was it soon after that? Mm-hmm. So I had to do I had to do two years in North Carolina doing the training. Um, we had to go through leadership training, patrolling phase where you learn ambushes, techniques, raids, and how to, how to survive out of your rucksack for a while. I learned to speak Indonesian. We had to learn to be, uh, go through SEER training, learning to be a prisoner of war and how to survive and escape. And then, um, I learned to be a communication sergeant, learn everything about networking and satellites and radios and batteries. 
and then I graduated in 2012 in May. And after that, it was uh, tons of trips and training. So between then, I, we, we did two trips to Thailand. We went to the Philippines. We went to Morocco. And then uh, in 2015 is when I went to Afghanistan. And then between all that stuff, there was months and months worth of specialty training, you know, shooting training, intelligence, operations training and such. Right. Now, just to backtrack for a second, you said Indonesian. Was that because of the extremism that they see in that country that the, your group was going to be sent to, to the Southeast Asian area? Yes. Yes. So each, each special forces group is regionally concentrated. So for instance, the 19th special forces group at that time was Asia or excuse me, Southeast Asia centric. So we are, our area of responsibilities, the Philippines, Korea, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, um, China, um, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, stuff like that. So when you go through the course as part of being a green beret, um, each, each person knows a language. They're supposed to be fluent in a language. And that's kind of what sets Green Berets apart from other other units is that when we go in, we we stay with the people we're working with. We never work unilaterally. And so we establish rapport. We live with them. We eat with them. We sleep with them. And then we fight together. We teach them how to fight. We teach them how to secure themselves and such. So every person knows how to speak a language. So mine was Indonesian. Um and then, you know, when we went to Afghanistan, we had folks that spoke um, Pashto or Dari, uh, Farsi, stuff like that. And then we had um, uh, translators. Um, I never got a chance to go to Indonesia just because of we, we were, had a lot of operations going on in the Philippines and Thailand. Indonesian does have a lot of extremists um, and a lot of violence and stuff. But uh, the closest I ever got to actually using the language was when we were in Thailand and they, we had a joint mission and some Indonesian Navy SEALs came over. And so we were just kind of just kind of BSing and talking to each other and swapping jokes and stuff. <laughs> so that's interesting. So you actually found yourself in the Philippines, not realizing, you know, years later that you'd be doing the Bataan uh, death march. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing. I've actually never thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well then, um, I always like to ask this and, um, this is coming from a civilian. Like I said, I've never, I've never served myself in, in a military capacity. And I think it's important that people understand what it's like through the soldier's eyes because we get you know one of two narratives usually either the very pro-war like i say you know uh bomb them all let god sort them out kind of attitude which is usually from a dude that doesn't serve and then <laughs> you have the opposite which is also from someone who hasn't served which is very very anti-war and what always strikes me with with men and women that have been on the show from all branches of the military is when they hit the ground and they see with their own eyes certain atrocities, then regardless of the political reasons that they found themselves there, now they have that true human justification for doing what they're doing. So did you have kind of any moments like that where you realize, okay, we, you know, we are really here to protect some innocents? A hundred percent. And, and so I, I had never been to Afghanistan except for this one time. And so going prior to, we were planning, you know, trying to do as much research and, and about the country and communicating with the team that's there and, and looking through historical records as we could, because we just want to be prepared as much as possible. So when I went to Afghanistan, this was 2015. So we're 14 years into the conflict and um, I had not been there before. There had been tons of people who had deployed back to back, you know, eight, six, five, whatever deployments. And so I went in there 
with more of an optimistic approach because I hadn't been there and I, you know, I was, I was new to this country. And so in my mind, I was like, okay, we're going to do something good. We're going to influence what's in our bubble because I can't affect things that countrywide. And so I can't, you know, end the war, fix everything right away. So I got to go there and I got to be like, okay, I'm going to influence what's in my bubble. What is in my bubble, the specific area we're with, the men I'm with, the people we're working with. And so, um, we, so it was kind of an optimistic thing. And so a bunch of my teammates have been there before and they, you know, they were trying to polite, not politely, but just tell me, Hey, look, you know, I, we get, we get that. But at the same time, like you need to understand that there's been tons of people that have come in and out through there. Um, you may become a little, uh, a little dejected about it. You may become bitter about it. Just, just keep your attitude up and we'll see what happens once we get there. So I said, okay. So I just made plans, you know, in my mind, this little goal, I'm going to affect what I can within my bubble. And then, so when we first got there, um, Afghanistan in 2015 is when the war had officially ended. So the politicians and the generals said, Hey, the war is over. We're bringing troops back and we want everybody that's in country on a only advising and assisting capacity to just sit back and not actually go out and conduct missions to not give them support materials, no air power, because we want the Afghan country to start fending for itself, not fending, but supporting itself. So when we got there, the Taliban had realized that the Americans and all the other NATO weren't going out. So they went on a huge offensive. They just started sweeping through parts of the country and taking over big swaths of land. And so when we got there, um, it was much different than what we had planned. So we knew we were probably going to be going out. So we, we got to our base. I was in our area of responsibility was Helmand province and Helmand province historically is a pretty bad area. There's, a large percentage of the world's opium comes from Her- um, comes from Helmand. I can't remember the number. I think it's somewhere around 90% comes specifically from Helmand. So, you know, right off the bat, it's going to be contested. The, there's going to be a little, there won't be very much stability. So we went in there and it's going to know it's going to be bad. So the, the second, I think it was the second or third night that we were in Helmand, we had a, a VIP visit. And it was some high-level generals and sergeant majors from our unit and also from Afghan units coming in because they wanted to assess the area. They knew that the, the Taliban were on the offensive. And when we were all going on a convoy through – when they were all going on a convoy through our gate to um, to our base, we had uh, a green on blue incident. Um, green means friendly forces. Blue means us. And so it was uh, – at the gate, uh, uh, Afghan special forces commando, he opened up fire on the – on the convoy and ended up killing two people and injuring like 13 with his machine gun. So, um, we, we, you know, we, we fixed that situation, you know, we, we got through it, but it set a precedent for us. We're like, okay, we came in here a little bit optimistic, but now this is what's real. Like they, like they, it was like chess, like they made a move to make, put us on the defensive and set our attitudes that, Hey, this is not what we expected. We got to really hunker down and really be a lot more, um, on the offensive than we were expecting because we were expecting to just sit in a base and advise, but now we're like, okay, well, they, they drew first blood kind of thing. So right now the, uh, the green on blue, that was deliberate and it wasn't an accident. No. So uh, green on blues happen a lot in Afghanistan. It's, it's a way for the Taliban for ISIS or Al Qaeda, whoever it is to put us 
back on our toes. And a lot of times it happens right when a new team is swapping in with an old team because one of the most vulnerable times is when upon infill and exfill just in missions and stuff. So those things happen. And what happens is a lot of times like a soldier, an Afghan soldier will go on leave the Tal, whoever it is, uh, Taliban, Al Qaeda, ISIS will, will contact them and say, Hey, you know, we'll pay you a bunch of money if you do this. And if the person is resistant, then they'll go towards the more violent methods and they'll, they'll go to the person's family and they'll capture them. And they'll say, if you want them out, you better do this. And if you do this, we'll pay them, you know, we'll pay them well. So they'll have a choice a lot of times. And so whenever a person would come back from leave, we were super, super um, alert as to it and just talk to them and see what's going on because it happened more often than not. And it's just a pretty big uh, methodology that the enemy uses over there right now. Yeah. Well, that parallels. I had a, a conversation with Ed Calderon, who's a prior Mexican police, kind of basically kind of special force Mexican police um, guy. And, they were talking about the same thing with the Mexican mafia and the you know, drug cartels there as well. And you mentioned opium. So one of the big things that I think is a huge cancer in the world is the drug prohibition and, you know, obviously the illicit drug trade that that created. Did the, do you think the opium in, um, Afghanistan actually funded a lot of the terrorism and, you know, resistance that you guys were facing? Absolutely. So, um, it, it gives it gives them a mechanism to fund their fund their operations because since since there's been just decades of war in Afghanistan, the infrastructure and the economy of that place is just in ruins. There's not a whole lot of exporting or importing. They there's especially down in the area that I was at, very very rural, minimal electricity if any. They're living in mud huts. They don't have running water. There's no utilities, and it's because it's because of the drugs. So like, so for instance, um, what would happen is a lot of these farmers, the farmers have the option to grow, you know, cotton, corn, alfalfa, and the U S started initiatives initially on in the war to try to give alternative crops to these farmers instead of growing opium. But people would come, you know, whoever would be, would come to the farmer and say, Hey, I'm going to buy your crop of opium before you even thought about planting. And they would hand them a just a crap load of money and say, I'll be back when it's time to harvest it and I'll, and I'll pick it up. So the farmer has no incentive to do anything else because the, the people that are buying the drugs are paying way more um, than what the U S was paying them. So of course they're going to grow um, opium and, and marijuana as well, but it just, it just leads to this um, destructive circle because the there's the whole area has, only that they only focus on opium production, especially down at Helmand. And then there's no schools because the Taliban essentially destroyed all the public schools for all the kids and they put them into madrasas, like kind of an indoctrination kind of thing. So what you have is, is the drug trade and then you have the Taliban promoting IED manufacture. So these kids, they learn to either grow opium or they learn to make IEDs and then they teach the kids to do that. And so there's no actually, generational education for these kids and then it just becomes worse over time so firstly thank you for that because that's a perspective i've never heard before but secondly um it's horrendous as you reverse engineer drug prohibition all of the violence and even you know we're seeing whether it's the the violence in the the borders here with mexico whether it's the violence in afghanistan but so much bad has come out of that and to me I know I'm uh, making it very, very simple, but if you cut the head off the snake of the supply and demand for the illicit drug trade and you make it 
you know, a, a legal um, and therefore medical element of the Western nations, then there's not going to be that pull. Then these farmers can go back to actually farming what they want because they won't be able to fund terrorism with legal drugs anymore. Yeah, and I, I, I think that example is excellent. And it, and it, it's you can also use that example for anything illegal. Like if somebody wants something and it's illegal, there's going to become a black market for it, and then the price is going to go up. Um, and you know, a matter of fact, I actually, so for a very so since I was in the National Guard, I was a I was a cop for a very short time here in Tucson, Arizona. And for for folks who don't know about Tucson, Tucson's about less than two hours from the border with Mexico, so it's a big transit hub for stuff, uh, drugs and violence and cartels coming across the border. And I, and then in Tucson, because there's so much set, for instance, marijuana, like if possession of marijuana is a misdemeanor, somebody's going to write you a ticket and send you on your way. The only way with, um, that they would, they would actually take you in is if they had to prove that you're just distributing it and being a dealer. And in order to do that, you have to have five pounds or more weed. So if essentially if you have less than five pounds, you could potentially have a, a um, misdemeanor ticket written for you. And, um, my, my, one of my friends who's a border patrol agent, he said that they were so overwhelmed with the amount of marijuana that came across the border that if it was less than something like a thousand or 500 pounds, they would just take the person and shoot them back across the border, like send them away and just burn the weed. Like they don't have the capacity to prosecute because there's so much stuff with that. And then even, and then even, um, if you look at the and this was a couple of years ago, things may have changed, but bath salts and spice, like they're illegal, but the, the manufacturers would just change one molecule um, composition of the formula. And then, then the, the law took a long time to react and make that specific formulation illegal. And I remember there was an instance where um, when I was a cop, I ran across a guy who um, had a bunch of spice and he just smiled at me because he knew I couldn't do anything. Like I couldn't, I couldn't even take the spice away from him because the composition was a legal composition at that time. And, and if he had an illegal, um, formulation composition of that specific spice, it, because it wasn't very much like I, it wouldn't have mattered because the, the test at that time up at the state level was so expensive to test for it that they wouldn't, they wouldn't have even taken him to court for it. They would have just thrown it out. So it's just, it's just crazy. All the different the, the regulations and the red tape and just – it's an incredibly complex situation. Yeah. But, I mean, with a, with a seemingly simple solution, if you decriminalize, and that's what's crazy is, you know, we're, we're – I mean, the violence in the streets now, the, the, you know, civilians killing civilians and the civilians killing police and the police killing civilians, that's all – a side effect of these policies and creating this violence in the street, creating the ability to sell illicit drugs and murder each other over territory and, you know, all the, the overdoses and everything. And, and when you go back, and I, I talk about this a lot because I, I think this is a solution. I really do. But when you go back to alcohol prohibition, it was an epic failure. And the, this was basically started by the guy, Harry Anslinger, that, um, stepped into that position right when they shut up prohibition down. You know, we don't see people murdering each other from, you know, between Smirnoff and Jack Daniels anymore, you know, so it's crazy. I mean, it's there in front of us, but the ripple effect has torn the hearts out of so many countries. And it's so, you know, horrific to watch when, when if we started that policy, we can end that policy and send the positive ripple through the world. I'm hoping I'm so I'm I'm hopeful that there's there's change in in the pro, the pipeline with uh, especially with marijuana and I've seen 
the benefits with a lot of people, civilian and military and law enforcement alike with, with the marijuana side of the house, like helping, helping them. Um, you know, when it, epilepsy, seizures, PTSD, pain, I've seen it across the board. And so for my specific instance, I live in Arizona. So Arizona at this point in time has, it is legal to possess marijuana if you have a card, a medical card in which you go to a dispensary and have either a doctor on site um, write a prescription for it or uh, or your primary care doctor write a prescription saying your your issues, your pain, then you go and you can legally have a card and legally possess it. And that's just in Arizona. It's not recreational legal yet. So me, I'm a, I'm a um, vet. I mean, I'm missing both legs. We'll probably talk about it a little bit later. Obviously, I have a just a ton of pain. And so I'm, I'm personally, I'm not a keen, um, fan of the narcotics. And for me particularly, because I've seen a lot of folks that started on the pill route and ended up ending on the heroin route and ending up dead. So I, I try to be careful about the things that I personally take. And so I went to, and I didn't know anything about the process. And so I went to my doctor at the VA in Tucson. I said, Hey, um, I, I am not wanting narcotics. I, I need some help with the pain. Um, could you write me a letter or write me a doctor's note saying, Hey, this person does exhibit symptoms of pain due to X, Y, and Z. Cause I want to go apply for a medical marijuana card. And the doctor's like, you know, I would love to. And I think that it's a good alternative, but my hands are tied because the VA is a federal program. And even though it's legally here in Arizona, I cannot aid you in hard. So which you, if you're going to do it, just go to the dispensary and just ask them um, to write you a prescription. So then I was like, huh, that's interesting. So I started doing some research online and I came across some, some forums and some people talking about how if, you, if you're drawing VA benefits and you have mental issues, say you have a substance abuse issue, you, get, you commit a crime or you have a DUI or whatever, and the VA can see that you um, have a medical marijuana card, that your benefits, your, your compensation could be in question. Now, I wouldn't say that's for, for sure, but those are the things that I read on the internet. And that's all I can do is know what I've read because I've never experienced this. So that right there, those two situations made me super hesitant. And I have not gotten my card because I don't want to jeopardize essentially the benefits that I'm living on. So what I'm, I'm hoping that there's progress in the future because it's just a mess and everybody's on different pages, but the clear thing is that like specifically weed can benefit people and I've seen it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then you get MDMA and psilocybin. I had Jeff Nichols on who's a SEAL Team 6 guy and psilocybin therapy was what healed his PTSD, you know? So you've got all these these healing um, avenues. Some of them include what we call a Schedule 1 drugs right now um, that are incredibly beneficial in the right hands under medical supervision. You know, so, and, and Ed was talking about if you piecemeal, so if you just allow marijuana, but everything else is deadly legal, uh, illegal, excuse me, what he's seen in Mexico is what used to be marijuana fields is now full of opium, you know, so you have to cut it off completely. But, well, thank you for that because I didn't expect us to have a conversation on, <laughs> on drug prohibition, but, you know, you're, again, your perspective is unique and, and very powerful. And I, and I hear opium fields in Afghanistan all the time, but it was nice to actually hear someone that could kind of expand on that and, um, you know, talk about yet another horrendous uh, element of prohibition. Um, okay, so then kind of leading you forward then. So tell me about your 31st birthday. So my birthday is December 4th. And 
I was in Afghanistan during that time. Um, my team and I, we arrived in Afghanistan in the beginning of August 2015. And that's when uh, we had that issue with the green and blue. And then during that time, we were supposed to let the Afghans um, do their thing and, and secure their own country. And so we were we were in charge of we were in charge. We partnered with the special um, operations Kandak, 7th SOC, special operations Kandak. Kandak, I believe, means battalion. And in Afghanistan, there's different units, you know, like the 19th Special Forces Group. We were at the 7th Kandak um, and they were they were essentially rangers. Um, that's the role equivalent training and, uh, down in the area where we're at in Helmand, just as reputation goes, they were known to be kind of shady and not real reliable. And so we went in there knowing that, and then it was very much evident after that green on blue, but, um, Helmand being historically insecure and violent also, um, had the 215th, um, Afghan national army Corps, the ANA Corps, and the 215th was in charge of all of Helmand province. Well, the 215th was exaggerating its numbers to the Americans and to the Afghan government because they still wanted to get the same paychecks and the same supplies, but they were, they were drastically undermanned. And I, I mean, it's no exaggeration to say that they were 75% at least under strength. And so the ANA was in charge of securing the area, you know, they would man checkpoints and they would go through and do patrols and operations and stuff. But they were so incredibly weak that they started crumbling once the Taliban started their offensive. And during that time, the Taliban had kind of like a mobile army. They called them the Red Army, like a special operations unit that would just go mobile and hit different district centers. And that for some reason, the district centers were super important to them. It was like a, a mental a mental battle. Even though if they didn't control the rest of the city, they wanted that center um, because it was, you know, a, a metaphorical victory. So they, they went through and they, what they would do is they would, the Taliban would go in and they'd send some people in to talk to the local, um, ANA army guys at the checkpoints and say, Hey, you got two, you got two choices. You can either, you can either abandon your post and leave all your weapons to us, or we're going to come back tomorrow. We're going to kill you. And so the Taliban were very much, they were better equipped and better trained. So the majority of the ANA dudes were like, all right, we're out. And so they left. So the Taliban would come in and they would surround the city from all and cut off all the avenues. And then they would start choking in the district center by planting IEDs in strategic locations and allow nobody to get out. And, the, and the, at that point, the Taliban and ISIS were on point with mortars. They could, they were incredibly accurate with mortars. So they would just fire mortars. And I don't know if you know anything about a mortar, but you have to set up a tripod with um, levels, bubble levels, and you have to level your bubbles and you have to know your distance, direction, your altitude and all that crap. And, uh, so they would shoot nine to 10 mortars from a position, super accurate. They'd break down the mortar and move to another location and start firing again, which is to me is pretty impressive, um, to be, for them to be able to do that. Cause a lot of time mortar, a lot of times mortar teams would stay in one spot and bracket in and become accurate, but these guys could shoot and move with a mortar, super impressive. So they started taking all these districts and moving their way through the area. And so, um, our commandos got pulled to do all these extra duties. They, they would do checkpoint um, manning. They would go do personal security for high level individuals. They would go do raids and ambushes. And we were on most of the operations with them. And because the war had ended and the troops had been drawn down, Helmand and province had pretty much hardly anybody in there that was uh, NATO or U S forces. So it was our little team of 12 guys on a, on an ODA and special forces ODA plus our a couple support folks 
And that was essentially it in all Alpelman. So we were driving around and it was like the Wild West. If something happened, it was coming from Kandahar, which was pretty far away. And so we, we found ourselves in some hairy situations. So we, we got a mission and we went to this place called Sangin, which is a district inside Helmen. Sangin's a key checkpoint along an important highway and a water source. And it's been a hotbed since the beginning of the war. That's known as a Bangin Sangin because a lot of Marines had been blown up there. And matter of fact, I met a lot of other Marines who were like, oh, yeah, I was, I was like 500 meters from you when I got injured. And we're just kind of joking about it. But we went into Sangin with 100 commandos because we were going to clear some IED facilities and try to hit some some important targets. And um, I was I was in charge of leading an element of I can't remember. It was like 10 or 15 commandos. And we had a we had a bomb dog and his handler. We had a. Uh, a CMRG person with us. And that means civilian mine reduction group. And he was essentially a local that we handed uh, a mine detector and we trained him and said, for every IED you find, we're going to pay you. And it was super lucrative because they wanted the money and they didn't want to get hurt. So they found us a lot of bombs. So we had, you know, we had the bomb dog and the handler. We had the CMRG guy. I also had an EOD an explosive ordnance disposal tech with me. So I was stacked on um, IED detection came upon across a compound and looking in the compound, we saw a bunch of spray painted um, marks on the outside. We saw some barbed wire on the front. We saw some rocks stacked and that was the, the Taliban sign to tell the locals don't go in there. Cause this is what we own. So we, we, you know, we identified it when we started the process of clearing it and um, our, our bomb team, I'm just going to call them the bomb team. They found a bunch of stuff. They found um, artillery rounds that were stacked on top of each other, wired together to a pressure plate that when the pressure plate was compressed and connected the circuit, it would blow up. We found two of those. And those are real bad. Like an artillery round at times two is really bad. So luckily they cleared all those. And then we found a bunch of, um, we found a stack of wood, a stack, a pile of wood. And it was probably three feet tall by three feet wide in a circular shape. And it was all pieces of pressure plates that were just ready to be distributed. So it was like a pretty big uh, IED factory. So we, we secured that area, made sure there's no more IDs over there. And then we went around the corner and started looking at um, some of the other locations and we found a shack and it was a little small shack. And it was essentially the last little thing inside the compound to clear. And so I sent in five or six Afghan commandos and then after them went my interpreter, the CMRG guy, the bomb dog and the handler, they all went in there and I stood outside and I was just waiting to hear the report and they started yelling, you know, and then my um, interpreter said, Hey, you know, we found, we found something. It looks like explosive material. So I was like, all right, cool. So they cleared it. I walked through the door. I looked on the ground and there was a hole in the corner and it was some white powdery substance that was kind of thick and, and it looks like homemade explosives. Um, very much, it, it was homemade explosive. And so I was like, all right, cool. So I stepped back out of the room, put my left hand up to make a radio call. And I stepped on a pressure plate ID in the threshold that everybody had missed, including myself. And then, uh, at that point, you know, a point of injury. That's crazy. So every, every person had stepped over that. And it was just when you stepped back that you finally hit it. Mm -hmm. It could have been over. It could have been on. I mean, maybe because I had, uh, you know, typically Americans carry extra weight. I had a ton of ammo on me, radios and weapons, and maybe I was just heavier enough to compress it properly. Or maybe everybody had just not stepped on it. I don't know. 
Yeah. So, so tell me what you remember next. So, uh, so at that point, I remember a loud explosion. I remember being thrown back into the air and black, everything was black and then landing in a huge crater, like a crater that was probably as deep as my torso. My head was kind of tilted back. And then I look down and then I see the first thing I see is my right leg and my right leg, um, basically below the knee was just gone. But it was weird because my tibia, it was either my tibia or fibia was intact and it was just polished really, really brightly and shining. And I don't know why I remember that, but I just remember seeing that really, really polished and shining bone right there. And then I looked at the left side and my left leg was there, but it was kind of in pieces and turned left and right. And uh, I remember trying to move the left leg and it was no, no, it ain't gonna move. And then I just, and then right at that point, that that shock went through my body. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die. And I freaked out. I just, just had a panic. But the panic for some reason didn't last very long. It lasted maybe 10 seconds, if that. And somehow the, my training kicked in and, and our medics trained us hard. They trained in real world scenarios with, with all of our equipment, knowing where our tourniquets are, body knowing where to get the medical equipment from our teammates if something happened. And uh, training, training kicked in. So I, um, I reached for my tourniquet with my right hand and I grabbed it off my belt and I started, I pulled out the tourniquet. I looped it over my right leg and I started tightening it on my right leg. And at that point I started getting a little weak and, and, um, I don't think I would have been able to actually fully tourniquet it on myself. And I, and I don't know the time frame. It might've been two minutes, three minutes, whatever. But at that point, then everybody started to come to and I heard some screaming in the shack and then the rest of the team came to my aid the medics got in there and started helping me out and they finished the tourniquets. Um, they pumped me up with a bunch of meds cause I was starting to get a lot of pain. I, um, just was like, Hey, you guys really need to help me out with this pain. And so they, they gave me some ketamine and then it was just like, okay. And I don't remember much after that. I remember making a joke <laughs> for, okay. So let me back up military have a really skewed sense of humor. And so that's how we get through a lot of situations is just by really weird jokes. And so I remember saying something along the lines of make sure you don't forget the rest of my legs, bring the pieces or something stupid like that. And then, then I was out and my team told me for some reason that my body shunted off, um, all the blood vessels. And so I didn't bleed out and it kept my body calm. And I don't know how, but they said that my blood pressure and my pulse were hundred percent normal and I wasn't screaming or anything. Um, and it helped them to remain calm and like do the medical treatment properly because I guess everybody in the room hit the blast. So I was outside of the room or in the threshold and the blast wave, the overpressure from the bomb went into the room and ricocheted. So everybody in the room got, got pretty messed up. My interpreter lost his eyes, the bomb dog lost his tail and almost his uh, leg. And a lot of those folks in there got shrapnel all over them. Nobody died and I was the worst injured, thankfully, but it was pretty bad and they were all screaming. And so apparently since I was all calm and just talking to them normally, they say that it really helped them to perform the, perform whatever treatment they needed properly. And so, um, they got me met, they got me out of there. Um, uh, they called in for medevac and the sun was just coming up and that's when the Taliban likes to start fighting because typically don't have not a night vision goggles. So, Taliban starts fighting, shooting sniper rifles, indirect stuff to kind of scare us. Called in medevac and um, the helicopter landed right outside the compound in a really tight area, picked me up and got me out of there. And that medevac helicopter um, team 
with my pickup and with another pickup in January where they pulled a couple guys out that got injured and killed, they got awarded the medevac crew of the year in Washington, D.C. It was pretty stellar. They were some amazing crew members. It's incredible. Now, with you being a ranger specifically, do you think that your um, stress reaction was partly due to the indoctrination you'd had through that training? I would say, yeah. When we when we went through Greenberry training in the in the Q course, we we it was it's mental and physical. A lot of things you just think, oh, I just got to physically get through an event, but mental is huge. Like how you can tolerate stress and how you can tolerate a lack of sleep, a lack of food, and try to make critical decisions is pretty important. So we we did some incredible training during that time during those two years at Fort Bragg during the Special Forces course, and um, you really you know, somebody can be physically fit, like super, super fit, but you know that you, you, you spend a lot of time in the gym and you're fit and you're strong. You can do all these CrossFit workouts or whatever, but you throw a rucksack on somebody with, you know, 80 plus pounds, you make them walk through the woods, wet feet. You're at night, you've slept like two hours, you have hardly any food, and then you have to go conduct a mission and do it properly and be on point. Like that takes a special person, a person who's gone through some serious training and has like a specific mindset. And I, for some reason, I I don't know why I am the way I am. Sometimes I just think that I'm too stupid to quit. Like I just keep going, but it really through struggle and through all the struggle that I've been through in my life, that's really helped me to deal with situations. It's like I expand my experience bubble. And when I go through something really, really hard, I can reflect and reach back to this point in time and be like, I've already done something like this. It's not as bad. And then it helps me to get through to the next point. Yeah. And that's something that I think that I've learned from so many of the special operations people I've had on here. They always talk about police and fire and EMS, how they kind of hold us to the same standard as, as themselves. Yet so many of our professions, that bar isn't held high. And I think that's, Something that we need to really glean from Rangers, from SEALs, from PJs is as an organization, we have to view our first responders as elite tactical athletes because just with you guys, lives are at stake with us. And some of the mistakes that we see, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's fire, you know, are, are to do with, with overwork, with lack of recovery, with, with lack of training, with minimal entry standards. And I wish that our professions could hold us in the same kind of arena as they do the special forces because you know that's that's how we should be viewing our first responders as well i i 100 percent agree and i have a pretty unique perspective as of serving as a cop as well and um when i when i was in the green berets like we had the best equipment the best training we were set up very very well went through some crazy selection processes but um i like to equate like what i did overseas versus what first responders have to do here every day. Like I got to come home from war and decompress. And I know that for me, the threat or the danger is over there, but you know, first responders have to deal with it on a daily basis here. And there's no, there's no cycle. There's no, Hey, I'm deploying. And then I come back, I rest and refit, get my fitness back up. There's none of that. And and so to equate, like we had cycles, you have green, amber and red cycles. Red means you're not doing anything. You're just, you're maintaining your fitness, doing a couple trainings here and there. Amber means you're preparatory for a mission, a deployment a training exercise. And then green means you're on the exercise. And we do these cycles so that you can reduce burnout and you can, you know, maintain your 
efficiency because if you're always green, you're always going, you're you're going to get burnt out. And it's funny you mention that because I have a good friend of mine here in Tucson. He's a 22-year um, Tucson police officer, SWAT guy. He's seen a lot of stuff. And I've been talking with him a lot because he's helping me with this archery program I'm creating. And we're talking about special forces um, similarities into the police world because the, the group, you know, you think about all the different disciplines in the, in the special ops, you got Rangers, SEALs, Air Force, PJs, TACPs, you got, um, Green Berets and the, the, everybody has like kind of a little piece of the pie, what they do. And Green Berets are known for integrating with the troops or with the, with the friendly forces. You, you don't, you don't just conduct an operation by yourself. You're always going to have your friendlies because you work by, with, and through them. You can't do anything by yourself. And so that's why we learn a language. That's why we do tons of cultural training. We do tons of real world um, crisis management, personality con- conflicting. You learn how to do humanitarian missions. We have um, medics on the team who are trained to, to give birth to a baby, to have some kind of veterinarian training that you can help the local villagers donkey or his, his pig from dying. Um, you can look at the water supply and help these people. And so when we go into an area we send somebody in advance to talk to the locals who we're going to work with and the military we're going to work with. We identify issues politically, culturally, socially that we can help them. Um, because if we know and understand the people that we're working with, then we can help them better and we can gain rapport. Cause if you just, if you just go into an area and you're like, I'm the top of the, I'm the top of the food chain, you're going to do what I say just because I have a beard and a cool plate carrier. Like you're not going to make any progress. And so I was talking with my buddy who works for Tucson police about that, about applying some of these same principles about knowing your operating environment, creating rapport, being able to do conflict de-escalation because, because you've created that rapport. And so we're trying to put together something that we can work with the folks here about, you know, integrating these principles into, into Tucson police. Cause as it stands right now, Tucson police has a great relationship with the community and we're trying to keep it that way. We don't want it to, to get bad. Yeah, no, I think that's a great perspective and it's something that we all need uh, to look at. Um, so you are now obviously, you know, you've been hurt. Obviously, your your uh, men are with you are hurt as well. So lead me through the the physical journey that you took, but also the mental journey. I mean, to go from you know uber athlete and then one split second to you know bilateral amputee must have been pretty tar- hard to deal with. It was super, super, super difficult. And I tell a lot of folks that, you know, when you're whatever line of work you're in, you identify it as whether you're an engineer, like my wife is, or you are a doctor, you're an athlete, you know, whatever it is, you identify yourself as it. So when I was injured, I essentially had that identity just chopped in half the second that bomb went off. And I had to, I had to re-identify myself. And, and don't get me wrong, the, the military actually asked me and, and were trying to get me to stay in. They said, you know, you could bring a lot of value to the force. Um, at that time, I was obviously angry dealing with a lot of stuff, but I was also thinking to myself, I joined SF to do what I wanted to do, to kick in some doors, to bring some bad guys to justice, to help my brothers in arms. And I didn't want to sit at a desk, which is what I would have been relegated to. I would have been kind of a show pony um, or I would have sat in a, you know, a support desk and I was still done a valuable job, but because I would always reflect and compare it to what I did before, I just thought to myself, I might just be unhappy because I would see everybody coming in and out of the field and have all the cool guy weapons and kit. And I would, 
I, I kind of figured I'd be jealous. So I decided that I was, I was going to get out of the military, but I spent, I spent all of 2016 in San Antonio, Texas at a place called the center for the intrepid. And it's one of two or three major amputee recovery sites from the war for the military. And they're top of the line. They had amazing facility, the doctors, the physical therapists, the, the prosthetists are the people that make prosthetic legs. They're amazing. They, I was very, very fortunate. They gave me all the support I could need in the world. And what they did, which set me up for success, was they started pushing me early on, um, doing going to events, being as independent as possible. I'm, so I got injured in December 2015. In April 2016, I went to California with a, on a surfing trip. It was the first time I'd been away doing anything. I went without my family. Um and they took me surfing, took, learned, taught me how to surf, sitting on my butt, how to move around in my wheelchair, walk on prosthetics throughout the sand. And it was that right there with Operation Surf in California was a turning point for me because they, they, it was just like, if what's that old game or Pong or whatever it is on the computer where the ball's back, bouncing back and forth and the, the paddles hit it. That was a, that was a score for me where that paddle hit, hit me in a direction that just sent me to where I am today. And, um, from that point on, I was goal oriented. I learned how to shoot and ski mountain bike, rock climb, all kinds of stuff with prosthetics. Um, October of that year, I ran the army 10 miler. Um, I, I learned how to lift weights and I got really heavy into adaptive CrossFit for several years. Um, from, from that point on, I started like an adaptive CrossFit program out of my house and out of my gym. And I figured to myself, you know, adaptive CrossFit, lifting weights and moving around with weights makes me better in the real world. So I'm going to, I'm going to teach other people. So I started a program in Tucson, real small, teaching wounded warriors and folks with disabilities, how to, how to lift weights based upon their adaptations. I didn't charge anybody. I just was like, I want to give back and help people out because I've been so blessed just simply to be alive. And, uh, it's, it's been pretty awesome. It's helped me out a lot. Now, what do you think was the difference with you? Because, you know, we see some people that are injured. It might not even be dramatic, you know, like you went through, but just a back injury or whatever it is. And and that's kind of like a, a final nail in the coffin for them. You know, mentally, they're never able to get back out of that. And they, they end up spiraling in a world of surgery and pain pills and God knows what else. But then you get the, the you know, the Rob Jones, the Mark Ormrods, yourself, um, you know, Earl Granville's, who it's the opposite. And, and they find like a even deeper level of drive that overcomes these challenges that life's thrown at them. So when you look back, what do you think it was that, that created that mindset for you? I think um, the, the biggest things that set me up was that I had the scenario to be successful. I was, from the moment I got injured on the ground, I was set up to be successful from the doctors that worked on me forever, the people that donated the 64 were blood transfusions, the, the doctors that knew that I was going to have infections. So they put me on antibiotics. My family just jumped through every hoop and did everything they could to help me out in the military and the VA, you know, with all the support. But I think at like the core conceptually of it is that I'm super competitive. I'm a very, from, from a kid, I've always been competitive with my brothers, with playing sports, with everybody. And whether it's an over, like an actual competition or just being, being on a run, a group run and saying, Hey, I'm going to beat everybody or competing with myself. 
I, I think of that a lot nowadays. I want to compete with myself to be better than I was yesterday. And uh, that that mentality has transferred over into now walking on prosthetics because walking on prosthetics is a struggle and it's literally a competition between my mind and my body. My mind's like, I'm going to beat this. I'm not going to let this injury put me down. And if that means that I got to work out of a wheelchair, if I can't be in a wheelchair, I'm going to do something to be better. I'm going to read, I'm going to learn. And so because I'm competitive and I'm super goal oriented, it sets me to, to be forward looking. So I, I and, and be honest with you, I rarely look back at all the stuff that's happened. Cause if I do, I'm just going to sit there and be like, Whoa, you know, I've been through a lot. I always look forward. I look to the next event, what I can do next, how I can be better because I feel like that's the, for me is the positive way to do things. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on the past. And so I always look for the next event. And so for instance, um, in a week, I'm going up to Idaho to do an archery bull elk hunt. And so right now I'm training um, in the gym. I'm pushing the sled around, flipping tires, putting weight overhead. I'm training in with my bow, practicing, you know, different shooting positions. Um, I'm making sure my nutrition's on point right now. I'm getting sleep. I'm planning out and networking with the people I'm going to go with. And so having these events helps me to be able to push forward. But but what it really boils down to is I'm super competitive. I'm very goal oriented. And like what I was saying before is like, I'm too stupid to quit. <laughs> well, I think that's it. But like you said, with the goal, you can either dwell in the past or you can set yourself a new goal. And that goal obviously might be very different from prior to stepping on the pressure plate, pressure plate. But, you know, now you're in the Invictus games or like you said, an adaptive, um, CrossFit competition or learning a different skill or, you know, getting on a surfboard. Maybe as an adaptive athlete, you surf for the first time ever. So that's so powerful to hear as far as setting your own journey. Because as you know, in the CrossFit world specifically, people get focused on the whiteboard. Well, it's not about what Steve and Susan did. It's about what you did last week on a U game bear. Yes, sir. And and I, I dabbled a little bit in the competitive CrossFit world and I and it's great. And I found out that it's not for me, not in a bad way, but I, um, I try to, I try to everything that I do, I, I try to have a purpose for it. And so I feel like, you know, since I got injured, the adaptive cross fit thing was a method for me to get up and moving, be comfortable moving, um, throughout the world. Cause the world is not flat. And then it led me to be able to, to teach, um, the things that I learned along the way to these other folks. And it goes back to the same thing in SF. Like we, we taught when we, when we lived with the partner force, we taught them everything that we could to make them better medical skills, shooting skills, land navigation skills. And so it transitioned over to adaptive CrossFit and teaching these folks adaptive CrossFit. And then on my personal journey, um, I got into archery and how I got into archery was one day I just thought, I'm going to go check out a bow shop. So I went into a bow shop in town and I was talking to the owner. He, he ended up being an old Vietnam combat veteran. And as I was there, the first visit, this person walked in and she had a bow and a tackle box. And she said, hey, my father-in-law is in hospice. He wishes to give this to you guys and you guys can donate it to a veteran. And the owner just looked over at me and was like, well, this happened on purpose. And, and he looked at me and they gave me this, this old bow. And so the same thing that happened with adaptive CrossFit is that I taught myself how to do it. I learned, I researched online on YouTube, looked at all the, what everybody else was doing and then adapted it to my technique and style. I felt like I got pretty competent in it. And then 
Um, now looking forward, I'm working with um, an organization called Operation Enduring Word to develop an archery program for the people that they support. So it's just this awesome cycle of setting goals, learning something new, paying it for, giving it back, and then finding out something else so that I can, you know, just keep on that process the rest of my life. Absolutely. Well, I've had numerous guests from OEW on here, um, and I know Jonathan Lopez was kind of integral in, in getting you to come join the team. So tell me about how you guys met and how he was finally able to convince you. Mm. So I, uh, when, when I, going back to Adaptive CrossFit, I, I learned a lot from other folks on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, because I was just Googling and researching as much as I could. I was like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to lift a weight overhead? You know, how am I going to, you know, walk carrying weights? And so I ended up, you know, connecting with just a ton of adaptive athletes throughout the world that, you know, military, non-military alike, injured, line of duty, injured, car accident, born with a, you know, a specific disability. And, uh, and then I connected with Jonathan Lopez and he's a single arm amputee from a motorcycle accident, um, army, army veteran. And he, um, he serves with operation enduring warrior OEW now on their, um, skydive program. He's the manager of their skydive program. So he takes disabled folks skydiving, which is incredible. And, um, so I connected with him on Instagram and OEW, they're, they're, they're known for taking their honorees, which are the people they support through crazy events, um, obstacle races, Spartans, Tough Mudders, Grand Canyon crossings, long ruck, ruck marches, you know, bicycle rides across the country to raise money. It's, it's incredible because they take somebody like myself who has a disability and is like, I can't do this anymore. And then they adapt their equipment and then they help support them with their team members through this event. So getting somebody, you know, through, who has a high, high level of amputation to do a Spartan race is incredible. And that's what they do. So they support these people and they empower them through this. And so, um, Jonathan and I were actually planning on doing skydiving. He was going to bring me into the skydiving program this year, early this year, which is in Arizona. And, uh, we were planning on it and everything was going to be good. And then, um, the COVID pandemic hit. And so we had to just kind of reset. So he went back back to home in Florida and I stayed here and the skydiving was just kind of put on hold, but we both um, had started shooting unbeknownst to each other. And one day I saw a, a post of his, of him shooting a bow. Now, if you can imagine somebody who's missing an arm, how in the heck do you shoot a bow? So he takes a piece of cord and he ties it to the string and makes a mouth tab. So he bites on the mouth tab and then pushes out with his other arm and then releases with his mouth to shoot the arrow. And the dude is shooting 70 pounds, and now he's actually shooting 80 pounds of weight from his mouth. It's incredible, and he's, he's, he's like a sniper. He's super accurate. So I saw him shooting, and I had the same bow as him. And so I just contacted him. I was like, man, that's really awesome. He's shooting the same bow and started asking him questions about the specifics because I've gotten super, super into archery. To the, I've gotten into the weeds to the point where I, I kind of outfitted my garage as an archery shop. Of a bow press, a bow vice. I have scales and bubbles and lasers, um, making my own strings, chronograph, and so I'm like real into like the the science and the math behind it. How much your bow weighs, or your how many pounds you're pulling back? How long is your draw length? How much does your arrow weigh total weight? Where is the percentage of weight on the front? And then where are you hitting? And so me and him were competing. See, we can shoot. Who, who's the first person who can shoot a stick at 100 yards? Which is pretty pretty awesome. And then uh, one day, about a month and a half, two months ago, I just called him. Or no, I texted him and I said, hey, 
you know, Operation Enduring Warrior needs to start an archery program because of the benefit that me and John had seen in our lives. And so he called me right away and he's like, I literally just got off the phone with him a couple hours ago and I said, we should start an archery program. And I was like, that's awesome. He's like, so what do you think? You want to do it? I was like, wait, what? He's like, you want to manage it? I was like, uh, just give me a second and let me think about it. You know, it took a couple of hours and I was all in at that. It was just kind of funny how he, that's just what Lopez does. He, you get Lopez and, and I, it turned out <laughs> the situation. Yeah. He doesn't mince his words. <laughs> I love it. I love that dude. <laughs> well, it's funny you were talking about the setup in your garage. Cause to me that immediately made me think of what you mentioned at the beginning, which was the mechanical engineering. So it's gone full circle to an element that you're actually passionate about now. I, I love, for me, I love to be an expert um, at, at my trade. And in SF, they taught us to, to master the basics. Um, and, and to me, I've taken that to a step where I like to know technically how things work. Um, it, it's even expanded to the point where, like, with my prosthetic legs, I'll take these things apart. I'll modify them on my own. Don't tell my prosthetist I said that because <laughs> they, they like to do it on their own. But that I, I find myself in situations out in the woods or somewhere where, if something breaks, I need to know how it works, especially with, with these, cause it's my mobility. Um, so I, I take things apart and fix them all the time. And then the bow, the archery and the bow has really I've taken heart to it cause it's incredibly therapeutic. It's an active form of mindfulness. It's super competitive. You're outside, you're with friends. It's, it's shooting something and you get the satisfaction of hearing the arrow hit the target at a distance. I mean, it, I love it. It's to the point where I, I don't really enjoy shooting guns and rifles anymore because I just want to shoot the bow. Brilliant. Well, I, I saw the Jonathan and some of the other guys out there at the Black Rifle Archery event. Jack Carr, when the Navy SEALs I had on the show, was was there too. So tell me about um, what you guys are doing synergistically with Black Rifle. So, yeah, that's that's awesome. So Black Rifle, really similar timing, had uh, – was putting together the first veteran archery shoot because their black rifle is seeing the benefits of archery for its employees and the owner, Evan Hafer is taking archery and um, he's a big time bow hunter and uh, just, just loves it. So he's, he's showing it an example for his employees, but they, they, they put together a veteran ar ar archery shoot and black rifle is based out of Salt Lake city, Utah. And what they did is they reached out to a bunch of folks who were um, in the military who were injured and said, Hey, do you just want to come shoot some bows and arrows? And we're like, heck yeah. So they, they initially were going to plan it for May in San Antonio, but um, the the pandemic um, affected the lockdown. So we ended up moving it to July in Utah. So what they did is they brought us in. Um, they put us each in our own hotel room. And then the next day we went to Easton, their headquarters. And Easton is one of the biggest names in the archery game. They, they make arrows and lots of equipment and they have a lot of pro shooters and they have an incredible facility in Salt Lake City. It's, they have an indoor range that goes out to 80 yards, which is huge. And they have an incredible outdoor range and they have um, a lot of professional instructors there. So they brought us to Easton the next day and they took us upstairs and they just talked to us, you know, thank you for everything. You know, we, we strive to do things outside. We want to, we don't want to be stuck in a chair feeling sorry for ourselves. We want to keep the community alive. Evan was just talking about some great things and he, he was, uh, He's a good man. I really like his vision for everything. And then they unveiled um, equipment and they gave each of us, it was like 20 of us, they, uh, a bow, a bow case, binoculars, backpack, coffee, gift cards, release, arrows. It was, it was a lot of money worth of stuff that they had donated for us. 
was incredible. So then they had us grab our bows and everything. We went downstairs and they had professional world-class instructors helping us dial in our bows, teaching us techniques um, for the remainder of the day. Everybody was shooting really far. You had folks with like Jonathan Lopez shooting with one arm. You had people with hand issues. So they're designing like little devices to hold onto the bow. You had folks that were like super high amputations on their legs, sitting in wheelchairs, you know, being taught how to like stabilize their body, whether it's being strapped into your chair, just changing your position. So everybody shot and did really, really well. And then the next day we went up to the mountains in Salt, uh, just north of Salt Lake City in Snow Basin, um, which is a big ski resort. It's like 9,000 feet high in the air. And um, they they took us there in advance of an event. And the event was the Total Archery Challenge. And Total Archery Challenge is a nationwide event. They travel to ski resorts throughout the states and they put on 3D shooting events. And what, what 3D shooting means is you're not on a flat range. You're walking through the woods, through the desert, through the mountains, and like on a trail. And then at, at certain points you stop, you go to a cone and you shoot a target, but the target is foam and it could be a life-size animal. It could be like a, a scaled down size of an animal. So like they had, they had groundhogs out there and turkey sized targets. They had elk, caribou, deer, mountain lion stuff. And so it's kind of realistic and they would place the targets between trees through bushes and you'd have to kneel, sit, whatever. And, um, they took us and they drove us up the mountain and drove us to each target and side by sides. You know, they got the folks out that were in wheelchairs, grabbed their wheelchairs, helped pick them up, take them to the target. And then uh, so they could shoot. And uh, we spent the rest of the day doing it. We had, um, all the black rifle coffee company guys were there. John Dudley was there and John Dudley's one of the biggest names in archery. He's a, uh, he has his own program called knock on TV and he teaches people how to shoot, but now he's, he's gotten into giving back. So he's been involved with the special forces foundation and, and Evan Hafer a lot working with those guys. Jack Carr was there. Um, there, I mean, it was just a bunch of really good people there to support us and help us. And so we just got to shoot and it was pretty awesome. And, uh, and then the next day, Jonathan Lopez and I signed up for a, a total archery challenge event. Um, not really knowing what we were getting into because we didn't have the support as we did from with Black Rifle because it was just me and him and this and another buddy named Matt Pavlin, who's a amputee Air Force veteran. And so we started at 9,000 feet and shot 25 targets all the way down to just below 6,000 feet on the mountain. And it took us seven hours to do it. It was nuts. But the shots were phenomenal shooting off the side of a hill, off the side of a cliff, you know, sitting, standing. It was, it was incredible. I was smoked, but after that I was hooked, absolutely hooked. Well, and I can see as well the, the so many elements that have come up time and time and time again when it comes to physical and especially mental recovery. So you've got the actual healing effects of nature. You've got the camaraderie of the tribal element of being part of something. And then, you know, you, as you said, you've got the, the, ownership of a new skill that's, that's showing you what you can do versus what you can't do. Absolutely. And archery has really put me out of my comfort zone. Really. I mean, so I'm walking on, I have a left below the knee and a right above the knee amputation. So I'm walking on a carbon fiber legs. I'm always dealing with sweat buildup inside the legs. I'm always dealing with fitment issues with sores and, and, and pain and whatnot. So I, I, you know, I train as much as I can, but then being put in a situation where I'm at the top of us of a Utah mountain, 9,000 plus feet. And, and the goal is to get to the bottom of the mountain shooting targets, no roads, 
no trails, just bushwhacking this stuff on these deer trails to targets and shooting and learning how to shoot. And, uh, it's, it's, it's intimidating. That was, that was, that was so intimidating. But once I got done, um, uh, that was some of the best archery training I've had. And the whole time, Jonathan Lopez, Matt Pavel and myself were just laughing and joking, just making these jokes to make the time go by because we're all suffering. It's hard for anybody. We're all suffering. We're just joking and laughing and being competitive. And it really got us through. And so seeing the community element of just the being together, you know, we've all been through some element of suffering really opened my eyes to like, oh my gosh, archery can, can be um, brought to so many people to make a difference regardless of if they're injured or not, uh, it can make a difference in their lives. Absolutely. So I've run with OEW multiple times now with multiple honorees and what I see them do alongside Spartan and Spartan is an incredible company as well is, you know, is mind blowing. But this archery element, as you said, is brand new. So tell me what your vision is for this, you know, what, and who it's for as well, who, who you're hoping are going to come join you. So, so we are, we are, um, developing an archery program for OEW and it's been approved by them. Um, and so we're in, in the process of launching it. We just went to another total archery challenge in Michigan, um, two days ago and did, um, we brought the president of OEW and some other honorees and folks, and we did like a test run and it was very, very successful. And so we're working on networking with a lot of folks, but what the program is, is it's going to be, it's going to be a big program and we are going to promote ownership and longevity in the program. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of nonprofits and a lot of support out there for uh, wounded vets and law enforcement officers, and they have amazing intentions. Unfortunately, there are, there are folks that will take advantage of this generosity and just take and take and take. And sometimes it comes to the point where they don't take advantage of it. They just take because it's there. And it, it's hard to say no to some of these incredible gifts. But what we want to do with archery is we want to set people up with ownership into this program because it's not a one and done kind of thing. We want to make sure that they come back and they progress, they set goals, and then as they progress, there's more resources available to them. So we're going to set a program. We're going to do camps, archery camps, a couple times a year um, in a couple different parts of the country that we're still working on on the logistics for. Um, we'll have beginner, intermediate, advanced skill level training. Now, when, when people first come to the camp, we're not going to give them a free set of equipment. And I know a lot of times that's kind of a standard for coming to an event. Uh, you know, you get to keep some free equipment. But the reason being is because I don't know if if somebody's going to get a, you know, a free bow set up, you know, thousands of dollars worth of stuff, if that's going to go in the closet or if that person's going to become hooked on it like a lot of the people that I know are. So what we want to do is say, okay, you know, you need to demonstrate or show some commitment and then we'll start giving, we'll, we'll give you resources and the resources that we're going to have are going to be great. You know, nice equipment, good training, access to facilities and competitions and stuff. So it's, it's worth the investment. It's like, you're going to, you're going to come to a camp, come to an event, and then you're going to come and volunteer on other events. You're going to come continuing. You're going to continue to come to camps. You're going to help so that, you become part of this family that's going to expand. So within the camps, those will be our main core, but we're also going to have pipelines. We're going to have a pipeline for com competitive indoor tournament style shooting, 3D shooting. And uh, a girl by the name of Leah Coriel is going to be my uh, lead on that. And she is a Paralympic archer out of a wheelchair. She was in the 
uh, army in the eighties got the anthrax vaccination and it gave her multiple sclerosis. Um, she went through a struggle for a while and now she's just kicking ass in life and she is going to be leading that charge for, for tournaments. And so she's, she's very adept at teaching adaptive archery. One of the other pipelines we're going to have is bow hunting and bow hunting is a very unique discipline in that it's very, very difficult, even for somebody who's not mobility impaired. And so we know it's not for everybody, but if people demonstrate and show their interest, we're going to teach them the skills. And if they're brand new, we'll teach them land navigation, terrain association, how to set up a blind tree stand, reading the wind, how to make the stock, shooting, tuning your broadheads, what's a good bow setup, how to process the animal. And so we're going to have that avenue. And my, my good buddy, Brandon Jimenez, he's the um, police officer from Tucson, Arizona. He's going to be leading that. Um, and he's also going to be my law enforcement liaison. And uh, one of the things that I've, uh, I'm trying to figure out right now is how we bring in um, injured and wounded law enforcement uh, officers, because a lot of times they don't, they don't reach out for help, partially because, you know, they feel like they don't need it and partially because there's not as many resources. So what we want to do is we want to network and do a referral based program where if somebody's struggling, whether it's mentally or physically, we can bring them in and give them therapy throughout that. So we're working on that right now. And then the final portion of the thing is we're going to do a bow technician pipeline. And if somebody loves archery like I do and they want to work on a bow and know all the nitty gritty details about how to tune it, we're going to bring in professionals to train them on how to work on bows safely. And then we're going to network with local archery shops to try to get them some employment, um, kind of promoting that longevity aspect. So it's going to be awesome. We're working on it. We're going to have a couple more events this year, and then we're going to open up to um, our, our main archery camps next year. Brilliant. So how can people find out more about that? Where do they go online? Operation um, Enduring Warrior has their website. If you Google it, I believe it's EnduringWarrior.org. Also, um, Operation Enduring Warrior has Facebook and Instagram pages. And then um, OEW Archery is the newest um, sub-channel of that on social media. So OEW Archery on Instagram and Facebook is going to have all our details about events and people we're working with and sponsors and stuff like that. Beautiful. Well, I want to cover one more area before we go to some closing questions. We mentioned about where you're sitting right now. So tell me about the Gary Sinise Foundation Rise Home that you're in. So Gary Sinise, um, he's a famous actor. He's um, most notably known for his role in Forrest Gump as Lieutenant Dan when he played a double amputee Vietnam veteran. He, uh, he has a, an amazing heart for service for veterans and law enforcement officers. It's incredible. And so he started an initiative called the rise program, restoring independence and serving empowerment, um, for severely wounded law enforcement officers and veterans. What, it, what they do is they build custom smart homes for people. And so they approached me a couple of years ago and said, we'd like to do this for you. And at first I was taken back because I didn't, ever expect in my wildest dreams somebody would say, Hey, I'm going to build you a house. But then they, they kept talking to me about it and said, yeah, this is the real deal. So we, we applied for the program and February of last year, they finished building this house and we got to, we got to choose a good area to live in for schools for our girls. And they completely customized the house to fit every need for me going on to when I'm old 
and I can't um, be walking on prosthetics. So for example, all the doorways and hallways are wide, they're ADA compliant. Um, I have a shower bench that I can um, uh, sit onto from my wheelchair. Um, the whole house has a custom um, smart home feature. So I can turn on enough lights from my phone, unlock doors, window shades, climate control, security cameras, music, uh, irrigation. It's all from the phones. And the reason why that's so important is because I have a certain percentage of energy output per day. And if I have to go roll or walk over to turn off a light, that takes away energy from doing something else. So I can sit in my phone and I can do these things and it makes it so I can spend more time with my girls um, instead of having to do that. I mean, the entire house is custom. So they built this house, they dedicated to us. They brought the entire community of Tucson to help work on it. So it's like we're living inside a community project and it is powerful, absolutely powerful. Yeah, it's a beautiful home too. I saw the the video when they featured it online and uh, yeah, Gary is someone that one day I'd love to get on. I mean, I know right now is, is a bad time for him. But, um, you know, you talk about someone who truly gets it. I mean, his book is incredible, of course, too. But he, he understands, as he says, grateful American. He, he, he understands the sacrifice that some of our men and women have made for this country. Some obviously paid with their lives, but some, you know, like yourself have a reminder of the sacrifice every day. And we owe it to the people that have laid down their life and the families, you know, of, of the loved ones to take care of our men and women. And, and, he absolutely leads from the front. So it was so great to see that was a part of your story. Yes, sir. I'm very, very blessed. Beautiful. All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. There's a lot of books that I've really, really enjoyed in my life, but um, I'm a, I'm a big fantasy and sci-fi guy and one of the books i really really like it's a short read is called starship troopers and starship troopers is sci-fi but the person that wrote it um has a he has a lot of um insight as to politics and service and uh, throughout the book he really talks about in depth what life is like when you serve in the military and all the struggles very the nitty-gritty details but it also equates it to service and being proud of serving your country in some fashion, whether, regardless of whether it's military or doing, you know, just helping other folks. And so I've taken a lot of that from that book into my own life because I really feel like service in, in some capacity has helped me to be not feel sorry for myself and to take whatever selfishness that I could have and and turn it around and make it make me feel accountable to other people like them being becoming better in some way. So it's it's a good good sci-fi book, but it also has a really lot of profound underlying themes to it. Right now, this may sound like a silly question. Is it related to the movie of the same name? It is, and let me let me very much disclaimer: <laughs> the movie is super, is just super silly. It's it's you know um, not real serious. The book is incredible. The book is a short read. It's related to the movie, the kind of the outlying theme, but the author what he writes about is incredible, very deep and profound compared to the movie. Okay. So just, there is a big distinction between the two. Yeah, yeah, because I actually had um, Captain Dale die and his, his wife, Julia, who I worked with as a stuntman years ago, and she was in Starship Troopers. But yeah, I I know there's sometimes where the movie version kind of loses the the the, tra the translation of the book. There's there's nothing, yeah, they, they don't equate anything about what the book really talks about in the movie. They make the movie purely for, you know, cinematic effects and enjoyment, but the book is a real, is a thought provoker. It's very, very deep. 
Brilliant. All right. Well, I've never had that mentioned before, so thank you. Um, mm-hmm. Well, speaking of movies, are there any movies that you love? Um, I, I like I like a lot of the the fantasy movies, um, but one that's that sticks out to me is The Last Samurai. Um, I really I really like that as a when I was younger because I watched that a lot before I joined the military, and it and it you know talks about the the discipline um, and the respect that the samurai code had coming from an American. Tom, it's, but Tom Cruise um, is a is a, a military member during the Civil War time frame in American history that gets sent to help work with um, uh, the local government on the kind of a samurai insurrection pseudo ish. Um, and so he just he's drunk. He has a poor outlook on life. He pities himself and thinks there's no purpose in life. And then through integration with the samurai community. He learns about a purpose and that's greater than his own, a code of ethics, respect, discipline. And I watched that and I, wa- I was like, I want to integrate so many different elements of that into my own life. And I really think about that movie a lot. Have you ever read the book Shogun? I have not. It, it, it is. Yeah, it's incredible. I think they did in the 80s, they did like a mini series of it. Um, Richard Chamberlain, I think, was the lead character. But it was a European who... I think in a storm they got washed off the the coast of Japan and they ended up, you know, being captured and everything. And he goes from a gaijin, you know, a, a a person viewed as less than an animal, all the way through rising to the ranks to basically a shogun. So another probably similar kind of story to that, but by far one of the best books I've ever read. Okay. I got that written down. All right. Well, the next question, is there a person you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Yes, I would absolutely recommend my good friend, Brandon Jimenez. Um, Like I said, he's a 20 plus police veteran. He served in SWAT and uh, he's also um, works with teaching other police departments across the country, certain techniques. And uh, he, he's coming on as my bow hunting lead and my law enforcement liaison. And he's, aside from all that, he is an amazing man. He's very, he's very thoughtful about things and cares, has a big passion for people. So I would absolutely recommend him. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. All right. Then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and we'll go over OEW again. Um, what do you do to decompress when you're not um, shooting a bow? I sit either in the morning or the evening on the couch or on my wheelchair. And I just, I just have no, no cell phone, no computer, no book, no nothing. And I just sit and I think, um, and I just look at the scenery around me because down in Tucson, we have tons of mountains. So I love just looking at the mountains and just being outside in nature. And, and there's something about it. It's, It's very peaceful and therapeutic. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. So then if people want to reach out to you first, how do they find you on the internet? Um, I have, I have accounts on social media. Um, just look, look for my name, Caleb Brewer. There's going to be a picture of a dude missing two legs, pulling a sled and can't miss it. So I'm on Facebook and Instagram that way. Fantastic. And then one more time, OEW. OEW, EnduringWarrior.org uh, or OEW Archery, the two big ones. Brilliant. All right. Well, Caleb, I want to say thank you so much. I think it was only what, a week ago that Mandy connected us, but you know, you have such a powerful story. Archery is definitely a sport that just keeps coming over and over and over on my radar. And I think John Dudley actually would be a good person to reach out to as well. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate you telling the story and I'm very, very excited to see what OEW Archery looks like in a few months' time. I appreciate it, James. It's been awesome. I love talking about my story because it helps me to not bottle it up. And if I can do any one thing to help one person or save one life, then mission success. So thank you very much for having me.